The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast in which I, Tyler, one of your hosts, finally loves the books that we are reading, and Greg found out that he loved the books all along. Greg, how are you doing? Oh, it's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right. I hope you enjoyed book two of The Wheel of Time. (laughs) That's all the introduction that I feel like we need. We got three (laughs) chapters this week. There is stuff about to go down. And frankly, normally I start off these episodes by saying, Greg, how did you feel about this week? But we have recapped the entire book coming up. So don't waste time on that. Any last thoughts before we dive straight into recap, Greg? Uh, It just always feels good to close one of these off. I say having it be the second time we've ever done it. So let's just enjoy it. Let's hear your summary for chapter 48, First Claiming. So we are in the POV of Min, who is making her way through the streets of Falmay, where there are crowds that basically seem stunned into inaction. She describes a few of them run fleeing from nothing, but most of them just can't comprehend whatever is happening. Min then glances back to the harbor, and we see that what is happening is all of the Shan Shan ships are aflame. There is one of them that isn't, and then magically a rider from the Horn of Valir rides a horse on water and sets it on fire, so it sinks. Uh, she does see Bale Domon escaping and doesn't begrudge him at all for not waiting any longer. Um, and at this point, she describes kind of feeling like she is being pulled somewhere. And eventually she arrives at a building. She enters, goes upstairs, and suddenly there is Rand. He is injured. He is barely alive. And she takes him into bed, looks at his injuries, and is like, well, you need some warmth, and gets in bed with him because Robert Jordan writes just like I did when I was about 12 or 13. Uh, Then Egwene arrives, Min explains that she was just warming up Rand, um, and we do get some description of a couple of Rand's wounds, one of which on his side has cauterized and was not able to be healed, and the other of which is a brand on his hand. He now has two herons, as predicted by prophecy. Um, Egwene then says that Nynaeve and Elaine are below. She goes to get them, and as she does, Min realizes there, there is someone else in the room with her. It is the most beautiful woman she has ever seen. The description sounds shockingly like Celine. And when asked who she is, the person says she is Lanfear, that Rand should be known as Luz Theron, and Luz Theron is hers. She then leaves, and we get about 10 sentences from Byer's perspective that I got absolutely nothing out of. And that was the end of chapter 48, first claiming. So this, I feel like, is when we transition from the big climax to kind of the the denouement or however you pronounce that word, right? We are getting towards the end game where we're not really advancing the plot. We're more kind of settling what plots have been resolved and what ones still are ongoing. So what was your thought on this chapter? Were you surprised that the, the book ended the way it did? Or were you kind of expecting more climax after kind of the big moments of last week? Uh, I'm going to skip the sex jokes. Uh, I always lean into the French and say denouement when I teach that term, uh, which I have no idea if that's accurate. It just makes you sound pretentious enough that undergraduates don't question it any further. Um, You know, I think we've made the comparison before. Um, I I actually did think the action was going to go on a little longer. I, I certainly know that Robert Jordan has skipped those quite a few times, but I kind of thought there'd be a little more, um, you know, the easiest comparison here is uh, the end of uh, the battle of Minas Tirith when it's just like, yep. And then the ghosty clouds are just taking everything down and our heroes can say some words to each other. 
But um, it very much felt like the 10th episode in an HBO season, right? Like the last one was the stuff you really cared about. And now yeah. let's just do the kind of clean up just enough to call it a season, but really entice you to be talking about it with all your friends and coworkers before the next season. Yeah. And I think this is a trick that I feel like movies learn, I'm sorry, that television learned late. I feel like films mm. and books have been doing this trick for a long time, right? You end the series, not on the high note, not on the big cliffhanger, but a little before, and then you give your characters time to breathe and you can see those kind of interesting kind of how is your character different now than they were at the beginning of the book. You can't do that if they're in the middle of a big action sequence. And I think you're right. It was like HBO kind of Game of Thrones style. Episode nine is the big explosion. Ten is when we kind of take a breath afterwards. I find it works really well everywhere. And it especially works well if what you can do is both resolve kind of a few hanging threads and also introduce some new interesting ones. That's what this chapter tries to do, right? The first half is look how bad the Sean Chan have been routed. And then the second half is like, oh, no, scary lady. Um in the first half, this is about as close to an action sequence as we have really gotten from Robert Jordan so far. I found it really exciting and fun. What was your takeaway from the Sean Chan destruction, or at least the little bit of it we got to see? Uh, definitely fun, definitely exciting. And my mind went to, well, the television show will have a field day with this and right. do a lot more with it, which I think, again, you know, is a power of different mediums mm -hmm. right i think i don't want to say media in that case i don't know latin plurals are weird it's plural um, but... i think it is media but <laughs> um but uh in this case like yeah the the show should have fun with that and i i think i've made this comparison before it always reminds me of the first time they or the more modern lion witch in the wardrobe thing where they yeah the book lion witch in the wardrobe has like there is a battle the end and the movie took like an hour to do that um because that's yeah. what's exciting to see whereas this it's it's not and i think i don't know my read on it is that robert jordan kind of knows it's not maybe the most fun thing to write or that he's not particularly well suited for that so i don't mind a little yada 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 um yep. when you still get like oh but look there's brigida like running across the the water with a, a sword um you get just enough that you're like okay some really cool stuff and yeah you know, um, it, it would be, I assume there's never been a like comics adaptation of this, but it'd be really fun to see an artist kind of play around with that and do some yeah. things. Uh, first off, just you're a hundred percent right. I think this is the right choice by Robert Jordan, right? Yeah. If there are moments, I think when action sequences can work in books, but it is difficult to construct an action sequence that's longer than three or four pages that I'm excited to read. So I think this is often the right move. Um, we then get out of action land because I have nothing else to say about that was awesome. It'll look good on screen. I think you're just spot on about that. Um, and then we get Min and Injured Rand. And I have a couple of questions kind of lingering after this. How mm. did Min know to come here? What was it that was pulling her? And then obviously the interesting question about Rand and his wounds. And some of them clearly seem either supernatural or at least odd in some ways. Um, so what were your thoughts on this kind of early Min and Rand segment? Let's leave aside for the moment getting in bed together, but everything up to that point. Uh, I mean, it felt Taviran to me, right? Yeah. It felt like this is a warping of events to make sure he's taken care of. And it, uh, Min, I would kind of classify in my mind as susceptible to the pattern right yeah. being somebody who can see it who can sense it it's not that it's controlling her actions but she can kind of feel it a little bit more right if it's it's yeah. it's she can sense the force instead of uh just uh having it pass by her right yeah. um that's a mid-range midi-chlorine count i think uh so um so we I don't think use that, that word on this podcast greg <laughs> you can bleep it we oh, there that's what earns us our explicit warning <laughs> uh so i i do think it 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 works because we've understood her to be you know she's not a Gwen, she's not naive but she's somewhere on that spectrum of sensing the way things need to be yeah and you know some of her dialogue in this portion plays that game she's kind of um, she's saying things about like, ah, oh, what am I to do with you? I don't want to be involved with this. I don't want to. And, but yet accepting that, like, 
but it's my lot in life, right? Yeah. It's it's what I have to do. And I think some of that comes from her seeing the pattern and yet always maintaining her choice, which I think is an important decision and something I enjoy about the way it's presented. Yeah, I think Min is a really interesting character. I'm sure that someone else has done this, but I had never really seen a character who is kind of built around almost like fortune telling for others and then kind of gets caught in a fortune that they tell for someone else, right? It seems like Min has so convinced at this point that everything she says or that she sees comes true that when she saw something about herself, the only response she has is just like, well, crap, I guess I've got to go along with this now. And I find that really interesting and compelling. And as you're saying, there's kind of a, a fun dance Robert Jordan gets to play around with, like, you know, how much is it actually true? And how much is she going along with it because she thinks it is true? And how much is she talking herself into it because she thinks it's going to be true? And there's a lot of really interesting things buried in here. The most interesting one from my perspective is as Min is kind of talking about all of these things, she mentions herself. She mentions another woman along with them, seemingly not Egwene, but I think we could probably infer that this is Elaine from other things she says. Mm. And then she says there will be a third who none of them have met yet. And I think that may be new information. We may have had one or two kind of side references to it. But do you catch kind of this very particular, it's not just Min thinking about herself being trapped, but also others and potentially three women. I think she even says the line, something along the lines of like, I hope you don't think you can dandle all three of us on your knee. Mm, I That did not jump out to me, but uh, again, playing that game of here's what kind of encapsulates what you've seen this book and there's more to come. So if you thought it was this simple, if yeah. you think you know where this is going, it's going to be different than you expect, right? And and mm -hmm. that's that's the exact right note to hit at the end of a 700-page book because you have to make us feel like we accomplished something and, and yeah. yet continue to read. Yeah, and I think that that's the challenge at this section of the book, right, is how do you get people engaged in a story that you have fairly effectively wrapped up? And mm. I find the, the twist at the end of this chapter to be Robert Jordan's attempt to do that. And unfortunately for me, at least, it was a twist that I had sniffed out like 15 chapters ago when he reminded <laughs> us about the prophecy about Lanfear. Um, what was your take on the kind of reveal slash introduction of this new villain, Lanfear? Definitely a moment where I said, that's a name I've heard before. Good thing I have Tyler to remind me where we heard and what the exact prophecy was. So, um, you know, I think it's been just to reinforce your point. It's been clear that uh, it, the character deserves or the character is a bigger part of this story than we've seen. Yeah. Uh, her actions where she's clearly been hiding herself and lying. And so it's like, OK, so, you know. I it it did feel like a deep tease the whole time. So this just kind of confirming that. But with the spin of if you didn't figure out that this is somebody who really, really matters, here's here's a clue. So yeah. fill us in on the clue. Yeah. So this was something that we got way back in, I think, chapter like five or six when we were reading about the dark prophecy and Varen and uh, Moraine were kind of debating about that dark prophecy. One of the verses of the prophecy they were talking about referred to a uh, lady of the night or something along those lines. And they inferred that was Lanfear, one of the forsaken. Um, we then about 10, 20 chapters later, when Moraine had that one chapter where she was off in the woods doing research with the other two eyes to die, we learned kind of a confirmation that not only was Lanfear involved, but Lanfear specifically had interest in the dragon reborn prior to the breaking of the world. And so I think those two things combined with the hints that we had had about Celine being from another time or being from somewhere older, and now the confirmation that Lanfear and Celine look remarkably similar, although maybe not completely identical. I think the everything is kind of pointing towards those two characters either being strongly related or the same person. That's kind of the, the angle that this has all been working towards is who is that mysterious, beautiful woman following Rand? Well, now we have confirmation that the mysterious woman that was prophesied to follow Rand is also beautiful and looks like Celine. Hmm. Uh, so helping out 
people who aren't as familiar with this mythology, definitely not me. I get 100% of it. But these these listeners who are fresh to this, uh, Forsaken means that they are, the Forsaken are tied to Shadar Lagoth. And they, go ahead. No, yes. Okay, so this needs to be clarified. Yeah. The Forsaken are channelers who lived in the Age of Legends. And they are not tied to Shadar Lagoth. They are tied to Shial Ghul. So Shadar Lagoth is the city that we visited in the first book where Mordeth and the Dagger and all of that were. Shial Ghul is the mountain. Think of it as basically Mount Doom where the Dark One is kind of sealed. And so the kind of catechism that we got in the first book is the Forsaken along with the Dark One are sealed at Shial Ghul. So these were people who lived in the ancient time, served the Dark One, and supposedly were, supposedly were locked away with him thousands of years ago. And so we've had a couple of them arrive at this point, two of them kind of rotting corpses at the end of the first book. Those were um, Belthamel and Agenor, I think. Which uh, was such a surprise to Moraine, and she was yeah. deeply unsettled in, in that climax. Exactly. Okay. And so then this is our next example of a Forsaken. And Lanfear obviously looks substantially different from a corpse, um, mm. but they are at least related in terms of the time they're from and how feared they are in this age. I don't want to say too much more because I'm trying to piece together what we've gotten from like little hints here and there, but I think that's most of our knowledge assembled. So the suggestion would be that something kind of cracked or loosened the binding and the first couple might have slipped out, yep. but whatever is holding them, and we know that more seals have been broken, right? We know if it's the seals, I'm not going yep. to 100% say that, but we know that it seems like the bindings that held the darkness at bay are being loosened. Yep. And so now we have that land fear is not just coming kind of slipping out but is probably has a good deal of her power yes now and, and unlike i will say one big difference unlike uh the two forsaken who had shown up before they kind of showed up and were like oh i have a job who are you Lanfear is clearly well informed about the situation. She knows who Rand is, that he's the dragon reborn, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. This feels like a much scarier situation than, hey, we showed up for coffee. Let's fight. Good to know. And then, but a, a kind of wrinkle in all of that is mm -hmm. Lanfier, we should call her by her name, came from the other dimension currently. We met Celine in another dimension. Correct. Yes. So we don't necessarily know if this is 100% Lanfear from this dimension who traveled to that one and then came back more powerful. Correct. That was a fallen world. So one could imagine that there was a more powerful forsaken force there and she slipped into this one. I mean, either way, yeah. yikes, Scooby. But it does seem to make a big difference whether this is this dimension's Lanfear out on the loose, reborn, or one that perhaps never died from another dimension. That is a really good observation. I will never forgive you for not saying root row instead of yikes. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. And unless... Well, no, I said, I said yikes scoobs. Okay, so... there we go. That, that yeah, helps. Yeah, right. So I, I was staying in character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the last section of this chapter is Bayer saying he didn't see anything, but he's going to blame dark friends just like Perrin Ibarra. And I don't have anything else in my notes from this chapter. Uh, did you take anything away from this last section or was there anything we missed earlier on i don't know can you see these notes my notes say lanfear ellipsis of myth question mark buyer ellipsis nothing else <laughs> yeah, that sounds right <laughs> um so i didn't have a lot to say i mean basically that and some of the content we're talking about seem to make it clear if you thought the uniting of all these forces on falme were going to make a difference they yeah. are not um and it actually, in those ways, it felt very modern to me, kind of yeah. a, almost like a fake newsy type thing where it's like, oh, well, we're just going to fit whatever happened into the ideology we already believe and yeah. spread it. So in Byer's case, he believes Perrin is evil. So he's just going to spread the word that Perrin is evil. Um, yeah. So, yeah, not a lot to say there, but nice to have that reminder that this is not going to go as we think it will. 
Well, and I think it's always good at the end of books like this just to have the like, hey, here are the loose ends. Remember, we didn't resolve this. And so this is just a good one to keep an eye on going into later books. Uh, I am going to do something that I don't think we've ever done before. I think we should recap two chapters at once because chapter 50 basically isn't a chapter. Uh, so You didn't pause, but I was going to say, he's taking off his shirt. Oh, God. But no, <laughs> go on. I think you're right. Not worth separating these two. So let's break our rules. Uh, so in chapter 49, what was meant to be, Rand wakes up. He sees that Min is waiting for him. Uh, he is surprised to see that she is not wearing pants. She is wearing skirts. That is not as dirty as I made it out to be. Um, he asks where they are. She says five days east of Falme. And then he tell she tells him that uh, all of the other girls, as well as Matt and Hurin, have all left. Varen took them towards the White Tower. Rand is initially a little bit upset about this. Then Min is initially a little bit upset that Rand was upset. Um, and then Min basically lets it slip that uh, Moraine is there, and then Moraine, of course, immediately enters the tent, and then we get a Moraine conversation. Um, there's one thing I'm not going to mention here, because I want to see if you caught it, that is a big, bright, scary red flag. Um, then Moraine says, asks uh, Rand about Fane. Uh, Rand says he didn't encounter him, and then Moraine gives her kind of description of what she thinks is going on with Pad and Fane. She says that not only is he a dark friend, but he also in some way was infected by Mordeth from Shadar Lagoth. And so now he is kind of a hybrid, it almost seems, between Dark and Shadar Lagoth. And uh, Moraine seems very kind of concerned about this, and Rand is especially concerned because he knows Pad and Fane threatened to go to the Two Rivers next if he didn't see uh, Rand at Falme. Um, at this point, Moraine produces a drawing of the battle above Falme, which includes Rand's face clearly being able to be seen. Rand basically denies that he wants to be the Dragon Reborn, and she says, you have no choice. And it is at this point that she reveals two additional broken seals to the Dark One's prison from High Lord Turok's uh, place, although how she got there, notably not told. Moraine is still <laughs> sneaky. Um Finally, uh, Rand looks at his sword, which has been burned and destroyed in the battle with Beelzeman. Um, He kind of briefly mourns the loss of his father's sword and gives up on the possibility that Tam is actually his father. He thinks to himself that he only has one duty now, stopping Pad and Fane. And then he goes down into the camp where he sees all of the people who are yet with him. Perrin and Loyal both say that they are willing to stick with him even though he is the Dragon Reborn. And then the Shinarin say that they are freed from their previous oaths. They pledge loyalty to Rand. And even Mazima, who has previously hated him, has some fervor in his eyes. And Rand thinks to himself that he has made a decision. Then, in Chapter 50, after... We learn that Rand's picture is being sent to many different places, just like Moraine said... And then there's a prophecy. End of chapter. So I think that this is solid. It's a good way to end the book. It gives us kind of a hint of what is to come while also giving us lots of little mysteries. I have two th questions. One, what was your big takeaway? And two, do you have any thoughts on what my big, scary, waving red flag was? Um, hmm. Well, my notes probably don't have it in it, but I was I was trying to think as you continued talking and I definitely didn't listen because I was thinking about the the warning signs. So let's see how this goes. Uh, overall thoughts. It was surprising that we jumped these few days, um, you know, yeah. and that we kind of took a lot of the the kind of juicy character beats. Um, yeah. And when you made your joke about skirts and pants, it reminded me we didn't talk about the kind of sitcom -y joke in the last chapter yeah. in the end where it's like, oh, I'll I'll warm him by climbing into his bed naked and then we'll be discovered. It's like you just needed Mr. Roper there yeah. to like, uh, I guess it's a little dirtier than Mr. Roper would have seen. But it was it was kind of like, oh, OK, weird, weird beat there. Um, and then. Yeah. It's almost like all your your kind of average writer, I feel like, and maybe that means I'm saying Robert Jordan is above average, would have like relished all of those moments of reconnection and so on. And we yeah. just skipped them entirely. So that that was my biggest surprise here because it seems like what a writer would want to do. And we skip it all. And maybe that's, you know, 
we've joked before about if the characters would just have a simple conversation and here's yeah. another means of skipping the conversation. So the the reasoning that we have to move Matt along to the White Tower makes a lot of sense to me, yeah. right? We can't wait to get, you know, he wasn't cured just by getting the dagger again. He's still quite sick. So that does give it a logic that doesn't make me question it, but maybe it is just uh, to obfuscate another book or so before we get some of those conversations. Yeah, I think this is just Robert Jordan really deftly being like, yep, I've got another 13 books to fill up. No sense in doing all of this <laughs> character stuff now and just kind of kicking the can down the curb. And I I can't fault him for it. I think it's a, yeah. a smart decision, as you said. Um well, and so then from there, I would say Maureen showing up to me was just a reminder, like, holy crap, she was not in this book much at all. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I think as uh, we start on other projects, trying to be vague as possible, uh, I'll just say it. The television show, you know, uh, centers Maureen a lot more. So kind of in this moment where we're seeing the end of this book, it was kind of like, oh, like she was not around much at all. I mean, yeah. as you noted, the really interesting cottage chapter and a few at the beginning, but for the most part, you know, uh, a lot of those opening chapters of this book, we said things about how it felt like when Dumbledore is avoiding Harry and things like that, right? Yeah. Like it's it's very much just, uh, she's not a central presence and is moved to the periphery. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, nobody knows the question, but what they do with Moraine in season two with, with yeah. the second book's worth of material will be an interesting question. Um, Absolutely. So I would say my best guess at what is a kind of warning is the fact that Moraine alludes to the fact that uh, Rand is angry and he says, you sent Varen to shepherd me. And she's like, nope, uh, I didn't do that. She did that on her own, right? A hundred percent nailed it. Yes. Do you remember what Varen said when she first showed up and Perrin asked her, why are you here? No, I don't. She said, Moraine sent me. Oh, okay. So I we was, have, yeah. We, we have two characters who should not be able to lie directly contradicting one another mm. now. And this, I will say, my first time reading these books, I was a giant oblivious, just, I was like a 12 or 13 year old. I missed all of the clues. I caught this one and I was so hey. proud of myself. <laughs> and I think this is part of why Varen is such a fascinating character to me is because I read this and I am now immediately playing the game of like, can Moraine lie? Can Varen lie? Mm. How can they lie? Why can they lie? Is one of them evil? Did one of them skip taking the oaths? There are a lot of questions here because the simple story of both of them are eyes to die, both of them have held the oath rod, both of them have said they cannot tell a word that is not true, that cannot be the case for these two characters mm. anymore. Uh, I certainly didn't catch all that. So give me like two thirds credit, like a, yeah. a solid C, I guess I'm asking for. Oh, that's a um, B plus. You're doing great, buddy. <laughs> um, but I would say where my mind went is more on, I think everything I'd read in this book about Varen, I was like, Varen is acting as Moraine's lieutenant yeah. or at least in Moraine's interest, if not on her direct orders, then is has aligned her goals and so this moment for me made me question all of that. Like, yeah. you know, we we had so easily grafted uh, the third Aes Sedai, Leandra, Leandrin, that we'd so easily grafted her into evil and these two into good. We What we know about Varen is Varen should not have figured out as much about Moraine as she had and yep. yet did and kept that information from Moraine and the seat, right? Yeah. So so I kind of interpreted this as she's a step ahead of Moraine and so isn't actually uh acting under Moraine's orders but is working in the same direction. Your comment just now and the further evidence makes me think, okay, who's right? And maybe they right. are still working towards the same ends via right. different means, but it would appear that one of them is going too far in breaking their oaths. I don't know. Interesting. Well, and it's worth noting um, from what we've learned, it should not be possible for them to break their oaths. So this isn't a question of like, has one of them gone too far? It's how did one of them get out of the magically binding oaths that they have taken? Mm -hmm. So 
that's all the red flag waving that I can do. This is a mystery and we should be keeping an eye on it. Um, aside from this, we get a couple of other interesting kind of notes in this early section with Moraine and Min and Rand. Um, the first one that I wanted to know is that uh, Rand has kind of gained some more new signs of his status, right? He has gotten a second brand on his hand, and we learn in this chapter he now has a wound on his side that Aes Sedai cannot heal. And for a character with as much kind of prophecy and mythos around him as Rand, it, it feels like a new wound that won't go away is at least something that it deserves notice, if not any further analysis. Uh, was there anything that jumped out to you about kind of this section of just like where Rand is at and kind of he had an abrupt end to where he was a couple of chapters ago. Um, so finally getting back in his head, what is your take on where he is at at the end of this book? Uh, stipulating that I don't think this is actually a Christian allegory of the nature of C.S. Lewis or something. I was struck by the fact that he's now been marked on each hand and yeah. now has a wound on his side. I'm like, wait mm -hmm. a minute. I went to Sunday school. I know these wounds. Uh, if he gets stabbed through the feet next book, we'll have to have a talk. Uh, but um, so that stood out that, but, but also, you know, like you're saying, uh, he is taking on a mythic status, which means he has to eclipse the Aes Sedai or move out of the world. Even they understand. And I think yeah. this is just the kind of first notice of this uh, very much uh, reminded me of Frodo getting the, the, wound from the Nazgul blade oh, yeah. the, uh, in the first uh, book. And then, you know, I, I think it, it, they say in the epilogue that he still feels it on the date. That's the anniversary of when he received that wound at yeah. Weathertop. Just, I love starting to talk about Lord of the Rings and all these words come back from like, you know, oh my God. like 2003, where it's like Weathertop was a word we said all the time. Uh, it tells you which circles I was traveling in when I was in college, I mm -hmm. think. Um, so I think those things, um, I like how you phrased it of he's ga gaining more status to that list. Uh, besides those wounds, I would add, um, they are just totally displaying the banner. Now the banner yep. is just hanging outside his tent and people are literally rallying to the banner. Um, and then the last one being the kind of big end of the chapter, which is we had previously talked about when Rand and Beelzeman, um, square off where are they are they on another plane are they in a dream yep. and in this case we hear they are giant and projected over the battlefield which seems different there was no report like that in no. the last confrontation so either things have changed or things have escalated in some way um but is it just because they both grew more powerful or is this part of Bealzo Bealzaman's uh machinations right right because it seems to work well to force Rand to make his choice and that's the note Rand's story ends on in this book so yeah it is worth noting no it is and it's worth noting while we are still kind of debating what caused it is it Beelzeman is it something else it's also worth noting this was prophesied to happen in the pattern uh Five will ride forth and four return is the beginning of the line of prophecy that also includes over the watchers wreathed in flames. He shall battle something, something. So uh, this lines up pretty well. You're right to say things are escalating and they're escalating on a prophetic scale as well as on all of the kind of, you know, escalating power scales that I think you're describing. Um, the only other things that jump out to me in this chapter are Haddon Fane. We get a little bit more kind of like mystery world building, kind of fleshing out who that character is. And then two more seals have been broken. Um, mm. Both of these feel like momentous things that will come back in later books, but I didn't know if you had any last thoughts on them or anything else in this chapter. This is my full list of things to cover for the book. So again, do not put more death in the category of the Forsaken. Correct. Right. He is a different force. He is he's the end all be all of Shadar Lagoth, which is totally separate from the Forsaken. Correct. Okay. Just clarifying again for listeners. I know these things cold. I, I don't need that clarification. 
Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, the the seals being broken, it seemed very clear that we needed to be handed the number to essentially have the bomb ticking away, right? Yeah. Like, the, we know there's there's more to come. Three it down, four feel, to go. It felt like if this were a movie or this a season of television, it would end with, like, a zoom in on some mysterious fourth one somewhere, like, developing a crack or something like that. Yeah. Or, like something like that. Like it's like, yeah, this is this is what's going to matter and and what we're going to have to fight against there. Now that being said, you know, that's three in two books. So it's yeah. not gonna take that much longer. It's certainly not gonna be a book fourteen confrontation, it would seem like, unless they just really use a lot of filler. <laughs> but yeah. but we'll have to see. Uh the last thing here then I think is uh people pledging themselves to Rand, right? This is a new step. It is not something we have seen before. And in particular, there's a lot of emphasis given on the fact that it's the Shinarans who uh kind of are the first ones to go over to Rand. And there's this em real emphasis on Mazima, a character who previously had really resented Rand, presumably for being elevated above him in the chain of command, and now is kind of looking at him with like this religious like zeal and fervor and i think this is maybe like signaling a little bit of what may be to come this is a very different conflict for rand than we've seen in the first two books it's like what do i do about like people following me is not something mm -hmm. he's really dealt with so far um so i'm curious what your thoughts were on this kind of last sequence of the chapter because uh death is lighter than a feather uh honor heavier than a mountain or something along those lines is a hell of a line to go out on uh, but it kind of foreshadows, I think, a very different conflict than we've seen so far. Yeah, what's the I, I've already quoted it at some point in this, the Hamilton line, right? Winning is easy, young man, governing's harder. Yeah. And it, it feels a lot like that. Like it's easy to be a sacrificial hero. It's much harder to to lead people. Um, my read on why it was uh the Shinarin saying that again. Shinarin. Um is uh, we talked a lot about this last week with uh, Lord Engelmar, right? That's like yeah. the people on the frontier have been, you know, I think of Cassian from the start of Rogue One, like I've been in this fight since I was six years old, which now we know is only kind of half true, but that's okay. But it's a great yeah. line. And, and it feels like, yeah, this has been real to those people for a very long time. And now yeah. they're switching, which should be the signal to people who are just tuning in like, oh, if they are choosing a side and, and supporting Rand, then we should pay close attention um, to that and to, to think about why they're so motivated. The other thing it reminded me of, and I had a very complicated um, Game of Thrones theory when I was a book reader before the show got ahead yeah. of the books and everything got terrible. Um, but I still hold out hope that there's some truth to this. But there is a way that the conflicts across um, the Game of Thrones first five books went from like very primitive fights to like then the kind of religious fights we see in the middle ages and then something closer to national fights. Yeah. And it felt to me like it was a way to demonstrate that the society was kind of advancing very quickly and that those were there. And so why that reminds me of here is, is, you know, this has been a kind of primitive fight the beasts type war, yeah. right? like fight the Trollocs. And as this conflict escalates, it feels like they now left the beast war. Now I'm referencing transformers uh, and then became uh, a part of the religious war. And, you know, yeah. I think in the story of human society, we saw like it was easier to find allies when you had monsters to fight quote unquote. Yeah. But then when it became other humans with different ideologies, that's a much harder type of conflict. That's like distilling thousands of years of human history into something that sounds like a lame bumper sticker. But I think it generally captures what I'm thinking here is that, you know, if you're going to have these fights between the white cloaks and Rand and his followers, that's a religious war. That's something like the, yeah. the Middle East, not to be at all flippant about it, but where people are so deeply kind of uh, held in their beliefs, it's going to be very difficult for people to change. Yeah, and I think this is something that Robert Jordan, I think you're exactly right to go to this religious allegory, right? Because I think that's even the way that Mazima's look is described as, is as like devout. And mm -hmm. I think that we've gotten a little bit of hints of that to some degree with the white cloaks, buyer in particular, right? People who are so 
uh, kind of devoted to their belief system that they don't kind of have any doubts about anything. And the idea that Rand may be facing that around himself, I think, is a really interesting place to be kind of leaving things going into a book that, as we all know, is named after Rand, right? Starting next week, we are going to be reading The Dragon Reborn. So uh, that's clearly his book, if nothing else. Um, do you have any last things to say before we get to end of book recap and kind of discussion? Last thoughts uh, on The Great Hunt? Well, let's just call the last chapter kind of silly and superfluous, but also kind of fun, right? Yeah, like, I totally. think I love all those kind of metatextual moments where, like, you see the story of the story in the story. And mm -hmm. and I think it's fun to think about, like, yes, there are lowly townspeople, lowly in quotations there, um, yeah. that are just able to get these, uh, these stories passed to them and what it means and how that will uh, spread and develop. Um, you know, certainly not a note heavy chapter, but a nice note to end on yeah. to remind us that this is going to echo across the continent as time goes on. Um, so I think we should transition to just a few kind of big thoughts on the book. Um, I'm going to land on this was a this read very much like a middle chapter to me. And I know we've we've referred to how it is. It is a middle chapter and it is not a middle chapter. Right. To me, a good middle chapter is supposed to take everything that we learned in the first book or first movie and just push it deeper, push it to its extremes. And I think so many of our characters here have been made to question their identity, their core beliefs. And that's what a good middle chapter does. They then kind of figure out who they are and then have a triumphant third chapter. But again, we know this is going many, many more chapters than that. So I think that's how this read to me. And it was very enjoyable as an example of that. So let me just push you a little bit. I am the person who always wants to know rankings and relative values better or worse than the eye of the world. <laughs> you guys say empire strikes back uh, <laughs> better than eye of the world. Um, again, you know, the increase in world building was my favorite part of this. You know, yeah. I, I think I've said before on this podcast, I find if I can learn everything and map it out in my head and have all these different societies, that's where I really jibe with sci-fi or fantasy. Yeah. And this gave a lot to do in that regard. And I think, you know, whereas before it was very much, here's the group traveling through these places by spreading it out and playing with different rules in society, um, certainly was more appealing. So I, I would put it above eye of the world, not like dramatically, um, yeah. but but certainly edged it out. And I think there's no point in asking you that. We know your answer automatically. Yeah, I will say uh, possibly one of my least popular Wheel of Time opinions. I have The Great Hunt at number 13 out of 15 on my overall mm -hmm. rankings. So uh, it's better than the eye of the world it's not 15th out of 15 uh, i firmly believe that the last third of the great hunt is just excellent wheel of time and mm. i think it kind of drags its feet getting there a little bit the middle third of that book is just like rand walking through a forest with a pretty girl and i'm supposed to believe that's a conflict but <laughs> once we get into the meat of this book it's really good i just don't know that it earned it given how slow the first section is uh but there are are i will say a lot of people who consider the great hunt to be like the first great wheel of time book so if you are one of them not to say this is a bad book by any stretch if you love it good for you i, I love the ending i i'm just not sure the rest of it is is quite up to par um, is is that kind of your perception as well, or do you see it as kind of struggling all throughout, but also, hmm. like, I, I guess that's kind of what I'm asking is, I see this as a very successful third of a book and a very unsuccessful two thirds. Is is that your take as well, or do you see it more even? Um, It's a good question. It did feel like, and this is, you know, hindsight in... Uh, june about some stuff we read in like february and march so we'll right. we'll give the grain of thought salt there uh grain of thought is a cool expression let's let's make a like t-shirt of that uh no the grain of salt to that uh but i would say i think in some ways what you're describing is almost 
I would almost go halves instead of thirds. Okay. Whereas the first half felt very much still in line with Eye of the World. We were very tired in parts of January and February where it felt like many chapters were just trying to make us remember what we'd already read. And, yeah. you know, we we expressed how it's a tricky balance that a book has to do that to, in case people are joining in, you know. A good comic writers say every issue is written as if it's your first ever issue of Spider-Man yeah. or what have you. And um, so it felt like there was a little too much of that going on at the beginning. And then I would say once they left uh, on their journeys, that's where it started picking up for me. So, okay. uh, you know, I'm, maybe halves isn't right. Maybe it's more like the first third was kind of a bummer for me and I was okay with the middle, more okay yeah. with the middle third than you were. Um, but I certainly felt like, we started to get some momentum um, sitting here and thinking back to like all that we passed through. It's kind of incredible how many different cities, societies, yeah. institutions were added across this um, and pure mileage. I mean, there was definitely a large portion of this book where I was positive. We weren't getting to Falme. I thought Falme yeah. was the big conclusion of book three. The fact that the Sean Chan seemed vanquished at least for a time, if not forever, I think is is also a surprise to me and just means this book covered a lot more ground than I expected it to. Totally. Um, while we are kind of on the overall impressions of the book section, uh, I kind of have two related questions for you. So one of them is um, what is kind of what are you most excited about going forward? What has this book gotten you kind of like ready to go and then the other question that i have that's kind of related to that is what questions do you have that are kind of like still burning for you what are the things that you're most excited to learn about going forward uh one of my favorite um podcasts that i listen to uh on film is is the big picture and when it's oscar time they always do stock up stock down and like yeah. each week like who's whose stock is up in each of the major races so I'm going to steal that uh, to say stock went up significantly for Nynaeve for me. Okay. Like I'm much more interested in her. I thought the clues were tantalizing and her kind of positioning um, as the kind of general of her army uh, was really fun at the yeah. end. So I would say I really didn't feel much attachment to her. Uh, sorry, lovers of the romance plot. Uh, like it just wasn't that important to me. Um I think stock down on Moraine just because she sat this one out so yeah. much. And, and I think that surprises me, especially in hindsight. I don't know that I recognized it as much. I think I kind of always assumed we were just one or two chapters away from a Moraine yeah. update and we just never got them until this very end of it. Um, so stock down a little bit there. Um, most of the books stocked down on Matt, but then he blew the horn. And so it's like, oh, okay, he's he's going to be a bigger deal than we thought. You keep emphasizing blowing the horn, but I just need to mention dropping the horn in the chapter before <laughs> is when he won me over. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, you know, no real change in Rand, Perrin, or even Egwene. Yeah. I think, you know, um, if we looked at the little... Uh, well, so so uh, I've been using this analogy a lot lately. My my dad has become an MSNBC dad, which he just watches it in insanely high amount and tells yeah. me every night how this time they're about to get Trump. And it's like, yeah. no, like if you get so involved in the stake every second you don't really have realistic expectations but if instead you check in with your cable news channel of choice like every three weeks then you get a much more realistic version of that yeah so i think within the the like nightly cable news watching i would have had very different feelings about perrin Egwene, and rand as the book went on yep. looking at it here on our three-week check-in of start to finish I would say they kind of ended up even like I think ran kind of fell back and then had to kind of reclaim himself and ended up kind of where he was like it doesn't yep. feel like he's totally different at the end of this book than he was at the start of this book. And Egwene, it was more she went up for a while and then had such a it's it's not that I didn't I, I don't like her after her turmoil, but whereas she felt like she had really grown, it was like this seems to have set her back and who knows yep. where she is. I don't think it's quite 
fair to say she's also the same person at the end of this book, but she's at like the same kind of level. Like she had some triumphs and some real setbacks. And so she's somewhere in between again, as a part of that, uh, Perrin, I think maybe just not enough happened. It was like some reminders of his wolfiness, but that's super cool. And we didn't see enough of it to make me really say stock up on on him and his wolfiness yeah i have nothing much to add to your stock up stock down i think i pretty much agree <laughs> with all of it uh Egwene would be the only one i would maybe be like okay i think that she had a really interesting plot i'm curious to see where she goes from here um but the only other person who you obviously missed is uh the most roller coaster ride of all roller coaster rides uh, the lovely horse Bella, who was initially <laughs> left behind and then brought along and then left behind, and apparently in the last chapter recovered and along for the ride with Egwene at ninety. <laughs> so uh, that is the roller coaster stock that we're talking about. To the moon, Bella. To the moon. <laughs> uh, well said. I'm not going to touch that just because it's masterfully said. So um, as we start to think about questions moving forward. We had a a great DM uh, a couple, uh, gosh, I think about a week ago now, maybe two weeks ago at this point that I'd I'd set aside as kind of something to think about. And one of the things we talked a little bit about is that this book seemed to rush towards a conclusion. And I thought that this question really fell in line with this. So um, this is, first of all, just a reminder, I am doing my best to actively check our DMs on Instagram primarily. That's the best way to reach out to the podcast either at through the glass columns or me personally which is at ion cannon e-y-e-o-n-c-a-n-o-n which is somewhere in the which is somewhere in the the post-show role and i will say also feels very problematic after across the spider-verse that i'm now like the villain of canon uh but uh one person who reached out to us was uh kyle scully who i will break our mysterious uh things to say this is father's day as we record this and i happen to know that kyle scully is celebrating celebrating his first Father's Day. So a belated happy Father's Day to you. Hope your little one treated you very kindly in the way infants can on uh, Father's Day, Kyle. (laughs) So Kyle had this great point and he said, uh, so he sent some questions and I'll let you kind of tackle them or if you need to not touch them, then don't. Um, He said, how do you think the Black Aja arranged their trap for Egwene, Min, Nynaeve, and Elaine? Seems like a lot of coordination. I assume uh, through some sort of fast travel, but curious if you had any more detailed explanation or maybe they organize everything during the Dark Ones meet and greet. So I I take this as kind of a, you know, in the heat of a reading, you kind of ignore the fact that things yeah. feel a little too convenient or whatever. But I think it's an excellent question to be like, like this is kind of huge and coordinating across a continent to to yeah. figure this out. So I'll, I'll throw it to you first if you want to, add any thoughts or need to pass (laughs) Uh, to some degree i need to pass but i want to pass in the way that robert jordan always used to pass uh which is read and find out it was his favorite phrase rafo was all over the boards back in the day read and find out uh that being said i will say i have one possible bit of insight into this which is the worst possible response on a podcast when you get a really good thoughtful question from a reader (laughs) which is that i am going to question the premise of the question right Mm. Uh, my only answer to this that i can say without giving away eight billion things is i don't know how much coordination needed to happen for this plan This plan was get someone to show up and convince two 17-year-old girls to go on a road trip without telling anyone. Uh, Mm. I think making sure that they could get through the way gate probably required a good bit of planning. I think making sure that Suroth was, or not Suroth, was it Suroth? I think it might have been Suroth, was waiting uh, in the right place when Leandrin brought them out of the Waygate. Um, having, um, you know, the Demane ready to go required coordination. But to some degree, the answer is Leandrin and Suroth either needed to be in the same room or someone needed to communicate the plan to both of them. How is a really, really good question but a plan that only needs two people actually isn't that complicated. It's just complicated by the distances, which I think is the mystery that Kyle is very reasonably highlighting for us. Um, Really good thought there. Um, and a reminder to that, you know, I'm, I'm taking this question again to say, like, 
you know, there was so much going on there and we kind of assumed that the dark friends, and maybe I shouldn't uh, generalize that. I kind of assumed that the dark friends are highly coordinated and highly like in tune with each other. But there were hints in that scene as well that, you know, there was a deal struck with the Sean Chan and it seemed like the, the some forces were ready to sign on with the Sean Chan. And so a reminder here now that again, we've read more since Kyle asked that question. So I don't want to be unfair to that, that like now the Sean Chan are off the board and okay. So that makes me think, was that part of the dark friends? Were they just kind of using them or was it key that they would all coordinate? And does this set back the plans of the dark friends and, and uh, the dark one from that? It also just, you know, any reminder of that opening kind of cocktail party of evil uh, is yeah. fun in my book to remember that these forces are coordinated as a part of that. So so great question. Please, other listeners, let that be a uh, a uh, inspiration for you to send in your own. It's always a little tricky when um, we're working a little ahead of you all. But it, whenever we approach the end of a book or like the television series or something like that, you should absolutely kind of take that as a moment then we'll put out a call to yeah. to add some thoughts. So questions that I still want to know, um, and we're trying really hard not to cross spoil between things. Right. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to say one of the things I'm really wondering about is uh, Emmons Field, because I definitely thought yeah. it was all left behind. It doesn't matter, um, which is actually foolish because we know in real Lord of the Rings, which I mean, book Lord of the Rings, um, like the Shire is in danger all the time. And it's actually yeah. important that the Shire is left unprotected and becomes the site of a big, important final piece that is just entirely omitted from the films. Yeah. I say that as if nobody's heard that. But if you were on the Internet in the 2005 oh to 10 God. era, you heard a lot about uh, the end of Return of the King. Um, so I have some questions about what's going on there and does it matter? Um, it is interesting to me. I think I've been in the camp that Rand, your, you know, Tam is not your biological father and your biology matters a lot. Yeah. Yet you're adopted. Like what Lan said, right? That that adoption yeah. matters a lot in this world. That was Lan, right? Or was that, that... was Lan? Yes. Yeah. So I want to, I want Rand and Tam back together to talk through some of that. And so this dangling thread of Pat and Fane might be headed there gives me hope that we'll check in with what's been going on there, which yeah. I am both excited for and terrified about. Yep. Uh, That's the, the right feeling. Yeah, okay. And then the other one, I'm, I'm blathering on because I assume you don't want to say too much because you, you yeah. have the correct answers. The other one is, um, the one that felt like a deep tease that just didn't fit into this book was the unburying of the statue in uh, in Carrion, Carrion, or outside Carrion. Yeah, and the hint that there's another one on the other side of the continent and what's going on there. Yep. That felt to me like it's one of those things that will be drawn back in. I never would have thought the farmer's daughter would have been drawn back in. Yeah. The statues I'm expecting to see brought back sooner rather than later. It. I think that those are all really great questions. I cannot say anything about any of them, which is a good <laughs> sign that you're asking good questions. And I think it is now time that we turn to everyone's favorite game that we have only played one time before. Oh Can you name the POVs? So for those of you who have forgotten how this works, uh, I have me. a list of all of the POV characters from The Great Hunt. I have them ordered in terms of what percentage of the word counts did their POV take up. In The Great Hunt, there were 13 characters who received a point of view in one chapter or at least part of a chapter. Greg, can you name them, ideally, in the order from most to least POV? Oh, I was going to cherry pick some of the bottom first. So let's... So most has to be Rand again. Correct. 53% down about 25 from the last book, but still over half of the text of this book. And near the top, maybe second has to be Nynaeve. Nynaeve is number three, 7.5% of the book. So if she's number three, Egwene must be number two. That is correct. 13.48. Yeah. 
And I'm going to give myself a pass on those because so many of those are about the two of them that you could yeah. easily forget which hundred percent like they could have all been naive and none of Egwene, but yeah. Yep. Okay. So Rand, Egwene, Nynaeve kind yep. of takes the three big ones off the board. I feel like what, what was uh Nynaeve's percentage? 13? 7.5. Egwene was 13 and a half. Oh, okay. So they're getting small. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Um, so other big ones, I feel, has to be Perrin. Perrin was number five, 4.3%. Because he took over a lot when Matt separated. Yep. Um, gosh, somebody above Perrin, but not anybody else we've already listed. Um, uh, the sea captain... Has to be. I wouldn't put him above Perrin, but I'd be surprised. Bail Domon is number six, just below Perrin at three point eight percent. So, oh, I, you are you're literally scratching. But I thought you were giving me a hint. Or I am are not? You? No, oh. I'm just scratching. <laughs> I was like, he's itching his wrist. I was like, who had? No, we already said Rand. Like, <laughs> um, I don't remember any of Engelmar's getting a. He did not POV. So is, did Jeffrom get that high? Uh, no, Jeffrom Bornhold is down at number 10 with 1.7%. Oh. All right. Um... Yeah, I got you good. This is a yeah, good all right. Game. So let me just throw in a few more that I know are... Yep. Wait, those those might have been... My... Well, Min is on the list. We know Min is number 8, 2%. And then when we think about fragments and such, we get beer... Just in that tiny little bit. Buyer? Uh, buyer, yeah. It is buyer. dead last number 13, less than half a percent. Okay. Um, We're now getting into tricky territory. Well, Moraine. Moraine is the one you missed at the top. Oh, she is really? number four. Uh, she oh. was 7.4% uh, of the book. It's easy to forget. She had three straight chapters during the like mm. uh, early portion where Rand and the... Um, and the Merlin were meeting. Those were all from Moraine's okay. perspective, not Rand's. Mm, interesting. Okay. So now we've accounted for down to number seven. Seven is our gap that we have right now. So number six was uh Bail Domon. Ben Bail Domon. I feel like we're missing somebody out on Falme. Um, Correct. but I can't remember who because none of the Sean wait, the Sean Chan had a chapter symbol, but they didn't have any. POV. No, no characters. Uh, we are reaching the point where this is not a fun game for podcast listeners. Yeah. I'm going to give you the rest of the answers. At number seven, Haddon Fane had a couple okay. of POVs. At number nine, uh, from just the uh, prologue, but Boars makes up about 2% of this mm. book, just because it's a relatively long prologue. Uh, you also did not have Tom Marilyn, who makes up about 1% of the oh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Leandrin had a brief POV, less than 1%, but it puts her at number 12. Just above buyer. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you don't have these stats on hand, but in the first book, it was a shorter list. That is correct. I want to say there were like four or five who had main chapters, and then we had like one from Egwene and one from Luce there and like way, way back. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, okay. Fun game. Um, Excellent. Hey, that's a book. Look at that. Uh, two fifteenths of the way? Yeah. Two fifteenths of the way. Uh, uh, you know, it's... Look, I'm going to say something a little silly. Uh, I spend my time and you spend your time with a lot of undergraduates and um, in broad strokes, reading is less and less of a priority in the yeah. lives of 18 year olds. That is not to say none of them read or none of them highly cherish reading. But if you have gotten this far in our, your journey with us, that is remarkable, right? Yeah. Um, again, I, we know people go through this at their own pace and their own times, but we've now read God, like 1,500 pages in a year. Um, yeah. As as Tyler and I record, we are somewhere between uh, a year. We are more than a year since we started recording, but less than a year than the episode started dropping. So we're yeah. not quite sure which one counts as the anniversary. But in about a year, we've covered two books. It, uh, it has flown by, if I'm being honest. But yeah. I, I want to just give our readers a sense of accomplishment because – 
you know, uh, my bias is that reading really matters. And whatever you're reading, you are reading and consuming text. And I include audiobooks in that. Yeah. And you are thinking about ideas and feelings and increasing your empathy and your understanding. And these are all things that as somebody who studies the humanities, I value beyond all else. And I think if you've committed with us to this journey and been a part of this community, we're just so grateful and thank you. So, um, so kudos to you, dear listener, if you've gotten through two books and if you thought we were going to take a break, boy, nope. are we doing the opposite of that? So decided just about an hour ago before we started recording um we'll be back next week with uh your first two chapters of the dragon reborn so if you have not used a fine summer day to take a stroll to your local independent bookstore and purchase a copy now is the time my friends because yeah. we're not going to stop at least is our current plan tyler what are they reading for next week uh next week we are going to be reading the prologue of the dragon reborn called fortress of light and chapter one waiting and i actually want to have us go out of today on a prophecy that we have now half fulfilled so as we lead into the next book, think about how we may be solving this one. Twice and twice he shall be marked, twice to live and twice to die. Once the heron to set his path, twice the heron to name him true. That one we just had. What is upcoming? Once the dragon for remembrance lost, twice the dragon for the price he must pay. And we'll learn a little bit more about that next time through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.